once more today, open your Bibles to John chapter 19. Wrapping up the H2O series. Um, Again, I've read the Gospel of John all of my life, but but it's really been good for me to go back and read it in this way. To to look at the way John develops that theme of water, and especially the way he brings that theme, that idea, to a climax at at the cross. It's really beautiful, and it ties the the whole Gospel together for me in, in a very different way. Uh, Again, there are some scholarly debates about who the actual author of the Gospel of John is. Uh, I'll just tell you, although I'm really interested in the question, I think the idea that Lazarus wrote the Gospel of John is really, really interesting and very, very possible. I still tend to go with the tradition of scholarship which says that that John wrote John. Uh, I say that because the Gospel of John is so similar in vocabulary to the, to the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, which we know with, 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 with good certainty were written by, by, by the Apostle John. So I tend to think the Gospel of John is written by John, although in the Gospel he takes some effort never to name himself. He, he never says, this is John writing. Instead, he simply refers to himself as, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. When you get to the end of the Gospel of John, you'll notice that when it comes to that disciple whom Jesus loved, there's some some issue about him. There's some mystery surrounding him. It seems like there was some question about how long he would live. Perhaps he would live longer or or, or even live forever. It's a really strange sort of uh, moment between Peter and Christ pertaining to the beloved disciple. We do know that John was the very last of all of those original 12 uh, to die. He, he did outlive them all. And so when he writes his gospel, the fourth gospel, there is this, uh, this important moment in the life of the church when all of those original eyewitnesses are, are, are passing away. John very well may have been one of the last of those who, who literally beheld him and, and saw him as one full of glory and truth, as he says. You understand what that must have been like for him. It's one thing to believe when you touched and saw and, and, and ate with Jesus in life, in the body, to literally have been at the Last Supper with him, to have stood at the foot of the cross, to have taken Jesus' mother Mary home and keep her in your house like a family member. I mean, John did all of these things. He was an eyewitness. So for him to believe is important, but it's not a great step. He saw these things. He lived these stories. He's telling you what he's seen with his own eyes. But he's also recognizing that, that from, for the generation coming after him, these are people who, who were not going to have that benefit. They were going to have to accept the witness, accept the testimony of those eyewitnesses who were honestly passing away. So how important is an eyewitness testimony to your faith? I mean, you're not going to see Jesus the way John saw Jesus. You're not going to walk and talk with him like the original disciples. All of these 2,000 years later, does it really matter that much that there were eyewitnesses? Of course it does. Of course it does. This is what makes Christianity different from other world religions. And don't miss this fact. Christianity is claiming that something very important, something radical has happened in history. 
in human history that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God who dwells in all eternity and glory, he stepped into our lives. He stepped into history, which means you can document what he did and you can document what he said and you can pay attention to what the eyewitnesses say and point back to. It matters a great deal that there are eyewitnesses and especially in the gospel of John. This matters to him. And I called your attention this morning, but I want us to come back tonight to this moment when John passionately stops to say, there's an eyewitness to this. I saw this. And it's a very small detail in a way, something that happened at the cross. But, but for all that John has told you in his gospel, for all the things that literally he saw with his own eyes, I mean, he could have stopped after every other verse and said, hey, I saw this. But it's at this moment, it's at this verse when he says, I saw this with my own eyes. You can believe this. Let's come back to that verse tonight and, and wrap up our series H2O by looking at this moment, this water moment when John makes it very clear that he saw this with his own eyes. Let's go all the way back to verse 28 where we read this morning and we'll move our way through. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished and to fulfill scripture he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there so they soaked a sponge in it put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. Now stop right there. Again, John's an eyewitness, so he's the one who names the branch that the sponge was on. And that's very interesting. It's, it's an eyewitness account, not just a branch, but a hyssop branch. But why is that a detail worth mentioning? What was hyssop used for in, in, in Jewish tradition? What's it associated with? It's associated with Passover. And what did they do with a hyssop branch at Passover? They applied the blood over the door. Interesting. So Jesus who dies as the Lamb of God, as a Passover Lamb of God, there's this interesting detail that they lift the wine up to his lips with a hyssop branch. Uh, it's just interesting. It, it's a good detail. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and released his spirit. It was the day of preparation and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was Passover. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Now, if you listen to the sermon this morning, I gave you some indication about how a, how a person would die on the cross. So why would breaking legs make you die quicker? Yeah, remember, you're not dying from loss of blood. I guess that's what I always thought as a kid, that they just bled to death on the cross. But how did they die on the cross? Asphyxiation that they smothered. And the only way to get a breath, the only way to stay alive on the cross was by being able to push up with your legs, to take the weight off of your lungs so that your lungs could actually expand. The only way to stay alive was to push up with your legs. Ordinarily, they would leave you on the cross for days. Days. There are stories from, from Roman and Jewish history that, that remind us that sometimes the birds would come and be, and be eating the body before the person died. It's a horrible, horrible way to die. But breaking the legs would hasten death. And so that's why they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus, but... 
When they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. Now, why is that important? Again, we're, we're back to Passover. This is Passover, and Jesus is dying as the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And, and when you were preparing the Lamb for, for Passover, you would kill the Lamb, and then you would actually eat the Lamb. But what was the important condition about the slaughter of the Lamb? You could never break any of its bones. You cannot break the bone of the lamb at Passover. So they didn't break his legs. Verse 34. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with the spear and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness. Now understand, it's after that flow of blood and water that John stops and says, now this is an eyewitness. You understand, this little detail of the blood and water is one of the most important things he's told you in the whole gospel in his mind. He stops and says, I'm telling you this is true. You've got to believe this is true. I saw this with my own eyes. And he's talking about that blood and water. Why is that so important? This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you can also believe. These things happen in fulfillment of the scriptures that say not one of his bones will be broken and they will look on the one that they pierced. All right, take your seats. Let's talk about it. That, that verse, one of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear. Now, what did he do? What was the soldier trying to do? He just wants to make sure he's dead. Again, like, like an animal, he just wants to make sure he's dead. So rather than break his legs, he just takes the spear in his hand and he just gouges Jesus in the side. He, he, just, he just stabs him in, in the side, in, in the body cavity. And immediately the scripture says, blood and water flow out. And then right there, right there, John stops and emphasizes, I saw this. This is an eyewitness account. The one who saw this is telling you accurately what happened. You can believe this. That's very important to him. That blood and water came out of Jesus' side is very important. Maybe one of the most important things he seems to say. Because he emphasizes, believe this. An eyewitness saw this. The blood and water flowed. Okay, what does it mean? Why is this so important? Why must you believe that? Why would the eyewitness stop and say, I saw this. I saw it with my own eyes. It seems like a small detail. I mean, you stab somebody in the side, something's going to come out. Yeah, what do you, what do you think, Claude? Yeah, in order to, to document that Jesus actually died, you see that perhaps this verse is, is included. The Romans were professional executioners. You understand? They're professionals. They're not going to not notice that Jesus isn't dead. Now, why would anybody want to say that Jesus didn't really die on the cross? Maybe he just went unconscious. And then they took him down. Why would somebody have interest in promoting that idea? Because throughout history, people have promoted that idea that Jesus didn't die, actually. He just sort of he passed out. 
and then they put him in the tomb, and then it was cool in the tomb, and, and, and he revived. Yeah, why is that, why is that significant? Andrew? Yeah, in, in other words, the fact that, that people saw him alive three days later, you can't doubt that. People witnessed that. Over 500 people at one time, Paul says, they saw Jesus alive. So it's the fact that Jesus shows up three days later alive that you've got to explain. You've got to explain the resurrection. And so John, at this point, perhaps wants to emphasize, we saw him die. Now, they didn't break his legs like they did the others, but that's because he was already dead. And if you think maybe he wasn't dead, let me tell you something. I was standing right there, and I saw a Roman soldier drive his spear into the body cavity of Jesus, and I saw blood and water flow from his body. He was dead. The soldier made sure he was dead. Yeah, absolutely that's important, and absolutely I think that's part of it. Even in John's day, there are already people who are, who are, who are misinterpreting Jesus' story and beginning to, to misinterpret and either, even in some cases to teach a false gospel. And by John's day, it's rather well known that, that there were a large group of people in Ephesus, in the church where John was pastor. There were a number of people who called themselves Christians. They just had a really sort of far-out view of Christianity. And one of the things that they believed is that, is that when, when, when God came to earth in, in the form of Jesus, he was never really fully human. You understand? This is what some of the people taught in John's day, that Jesus was, was never really human. He was sort of like a, a, a part God or, or like a, a, a demigod, something like that, something in between God and human, but, but really, really mostly still God. These are people who couldn't really understand, they couldn't fathom or accept that you could mix something spiritual with something physical, that God could become flesh was something they just simply would not accept. But it is essential to the gospel that the word in the beginning was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. You see, John wants to emphasize that the word became flesh. We saw him. We beheld his glory as of the one and only son of God. We saw him. And throughout John's gospel, he stresses that Jesus was a human body who got hungry and got thirsty. And he would sweat. And he got tired. And he slept. You understand? This was a human being. A fully human being. Now, he was still God. But he was God in flesh, fully human. If God never really became fully human, then he can't take my place. He can't take your place. He can't be my savior. You understand? That's what we talked about this morning. He can't take my place. He can't be my redeemer. He can't give me his life if he didn't really die my death. Do you understand? It's ingredient to the gospel that the word became flesh. That Jesus was flesh. Now, let me tell you one other thing that was sort of a part of the way people thought back in John's day, in Jesus' day even. And actually, it's still a part of, of our day when it comes to mythology and, and stories and, and folklore, that, that, that sort of thing. If you've ever studied or read any of the Greek or Roman myths, you know, about the Greek and Roman gods like Apollo or Diana or Zeus, you ever read about their battles? 
Because again, remember, Greek civilization, this is the same civilization that, that the early church is growing up in. And so as the gospel comes into that, that context, all of those old ancient Greek pagan myths sort of get mixed up with the gospel, you see. So if you read the old Greek myths, they, they didn't believe at all that the Greek gods, that the Roman gods were human. They were gods, but they sort of acted human. You've read any of the stories? They sort of fell in love, and they get jealous, and they fight, and they, they try to kill each other. But the thing is, when they killed each other, they didn't bleed. They didn't bleed. Again, look back at, at the Roman myths, at the Greek myths. They really believed that the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses didn't have blood because Blood is, is what belongs to humans. In medicine, back in, in, in ancient Greek and Rome, they believed that the body was made up of two elements, blood and water. And that actually the blood and water needed to be in perfect balance. If you got sick, it's because either you had too much blood or maybe too much water. Blood and water needed to be in balance in, in the human body. Do you understand? In, in John's day, blood and water had to do with being human. A god didn't really have blood. If you stabbed the god Apollos, Apollo, as is, is one did in one of the myths, uh, what came out was, was water, but, but no blood. So understand, John is combating one of the false teachings of his day that Jesus wasn't truly a human being. And so he emphasizes, I saw him die, and in the moment he died, blood and water came out. So, so understand, he really died, but also he was really human. He was fully human. It's very important in his day. He, he's combating the, the primary false teaching of, of those around him. I saw blood and water. Okay, so we've talked about several reasons why that's an important verse. Why else would that verse be important based on everything else we've looked at in, in this series H2O? What else is the significance of blood and water flowing from Jesus' side? Can you think? What's it remind you of? What's it go back to? Yeah, again, let's go back to the verse. Go back to John chapter 4 together. John chapter 4, verse 13. Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Go over to chapter 7, verse 38. John 7, 38. Preacher's the last one there. John 7, 38 says this. Again, at the Feast of Tabernacles, anyone who believes in me may come to me and drink, for the scriptures declare, say the words, rivers of living water will flow from, from their heart. Yeah, the word there is from their cavity, actually. It's the idea of, of the body, the side, the, the body cavity. Rivers of living water will flow from their belly. Okay? So you connect the dots when you preach the sermon. Why would John make a point of saying at the moment Jesus died, at the moment when his mission was complete, water flowed from his side? What's that mean? What's it say? 
Yeah, again, John is a very spiritual gospel, and he's telling us something physical about Jesus' death, but he's also showing us something spiritual, that, that it's on the cross. It's in that moment when he dies, when everything that he's promised becomes fulfilled. Jesus promised that rivers of living water would flow from, from the sides of all those who believe. So in that moment when he dies, John makes sure that you know that in that moment his side was pierced and water flowed. Water flowed. Again, John is saying something spiritual, something important about what is completed at the cross of Jesus. Go back with me then to John chapter 19. One last thought. This whole thing is introduced by Jesus' knowledge. Verse 28, Jesus knows what? Jesus knows that his his mission is complete. His mission is, is accomplished. So, so things are uh, accomplished now. So he says, I'm thirsty. Then he says in verse 30 something very important. He says, it is finished. It is finished. The Greek word I've told you before is tetelestai. Tetelestai. Go ahead and say that word. Tetelestai. It's one word and it simply means completed, finished. It's finished. Jesus said one word on the cross and that word was, was tetelestai. I've told you before that when you hear the word tetelestai in the Greek, it usually had to do with one of two things. For one, whenever you had a bill or a debt and that debt was paid, whereas we would stamp paid in full, they would stamp tetelestai on a bill that was paid. Understand? So tetelestai has that sense of, of something being paid in full. So you preach that sermon real fast for me. What's been paid in full at the cross? Yeah, the, the price for our sins, paid in full. So when Jesus says to tell us die, it, it's the same thing as saying paid in full, stamped across our lives that the price of our sins has been paid in full. The other time that word was very commonly used to tell us die is when a servant had been gone out to, to, to accomplish the task for his or her master. When they came back and the job was finished, they would report to the master and say, to tell us die, to tell us die, finished, completed. So that word was actually most commonly used by servants reporting that, that their task was completed. So Jesus here is using this word, this, this phrase that has to do with servants and masters. And he's saying to Telestai, the job I've come, the mission I've come to accomplish is now complete. So what is his mission? When it says Jesus knows that he's done what he came to do, what did he come to do? Let's, uh, let's do it together in Scripture. Go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. This is the very beginning. This is the prophecy when Jesus was, was being born. Matthew 1, 21. Talking to Joseph here, he says, She will have a son. You are to name him Jesus for, what's his mission? He will save his people from their sins. Jesus' mission to save the people from their sins. To Telestai, paid in full. That's awesome. John chapter 3, verse 16. I, I know you know this passage, but let's look together. John 3, 16 and 17. Jesus' mission. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save, save the world through him. His mission was to save. Turn over to John chapter 12, verse, 
verse 31. John 12, 31. John 12, 31, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. Jesus said this to indicate how he was going to die. Jesus is going to be lifted up in death and will draw everyone, draw the whole world to himself. To tell us thy mission accomplished. This is what Jesus is saying. Now turn over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. This is a bigger picture of Jesus' mission. Colossians 1, 19. This is a great verse, by the way. Underline this passage, <clears throat> Colossians 1.19. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So Jesus' mission was to reconcile everything to God, to make peace with everything, bring everything back into right relationship with God. And that was done uh, through Christ's blood on the cross. So in that final moment, Jesus knows that his mission is complete, and so he says the word to Telestai. It's finished. What he came to do, he finished. So understand, in that moment, Jesus had finished everything he was born to accomplish. For Jesus, it was finished. But let me leave you with this one thought. For Jesus, it was all finished, but for you, it's not. It's not finished for you yet. You have not yet accomplished everything that you were born to do. Some of us don't even yet know what we were born to do, but, but truly, you were born with a mission, with a purpose, and you haven't finished it yet. I told you all about how we wanted to have a boat down in our pond. We're not fishermen. We're really not much of anything. We just wanted to float. And so we saw on the side of Three Springs Road one day this old metal boat, just an old metal boat. It was perfect. And so we pulled over and asked the guy how much he wanted for it. And he said, like, you know, I don't remember, just 50 bucks or something. Because he said, it's got holes in it. You'll have to plug the holes. I said, fine, I, I can plug a hole. I got duct tape. You know, I can plug a hole. <laughs> so, so, so we brought the boat out to our pond. But, you know, who's got time to plug holes? You know, we just wanted to float. We just wanted to float. And so our whole family with dogs, uh, we, we get in this boat. And, and honestly, our pond's not very big. It's just not very big. So we would float around, but as we would float, what would happen? Yeah, we'd kind of sink. Uh, the, the boat would start filling up with water, but again, the pond's not very big. We could get out and back, you know, before anybody drowned. Uh, the, the, the boat had holes. Uh, we left the boat out in the pond uh, that, that first day, that first week, and uh, I came down to the pond one day by myself, and where was my boat? Yeah, bottom of the pond. Yeah, it, it, it totally sunk. Why did it sink? Be because I never plugged the holes. I, I never plugged the holes. As you think about what Christ has for you in your life, as you think about your mission in life, I just want to remind you that you got to plug the holes in your life. You will never, ever finish what God has called you to do. You will never accomplish his purpose for your life until you plug the holes 
in your life. This is what it means not to have any unfinished business. Do you understand? You can't live leaving things unfinished. For Jesus, the word was to tell us die. It is complete. It is finished. Everything the master had for him to do, he completed. You can't say that. I can't either. We run around with too much unfinished business. We leave too many things undone. I just want to encourage you to plug the holes. Plug the holes in your life. Right now, some of you have broken relationships. You have people in your life with whom you no longer speak or with whom you can't speak with love and understanding. Now, that's not always up to you, but as much as it is up to you, the Scripture says, you've got to try to plug that hole. You've got to try to plug that hole. Some of us live lives that are so busy and so crazy. We just go days and days, weeks and weeks, months and months, sometimes years and years. And we leave a lot of things unsaid. We don't say important things to important people. I just want to remind you to plug those holes. You don't have all the time in the world. And one of these days, you're going to step out and your life's going to be sunk. Do you understand? It's going to be sunk. And the opportunity to plug those holes will be gone for you. You can't live your life in such a way where you don't finish things. Now, finishing things takes perseverance, as the Bible says. It means you can't quit. It means that you can't give up. It means that you can't somehow get lazy when things get hard. You've got to persevere. You've got to endure. One more verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We'll close here. I love this. Let's read, let's read from verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And, and let us run with, say the word, endurance. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We run with endurance. Which race? The race God has set before us. Some of you, honestly, you're in a race, but I guess we'd call it a rat race. It's not the race God sets before you. You can only run one race. If you try to run two races, you're going to split your pants. Do you understand? You can only run in one direction, one race, and you've got to run the race that God sets before you. And you run it with endurance. And here's how you do it. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Listen. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured. He, he, he persevered. He finished everything God had for him to do and the only place he could finish that was hanging from a cross. I don't know what you need to finish. I don't even know where you need to start. I guess you have to start by coming before the master and finding out what his mission for you is. What is your job? If you can't think about that in a long way, what about just tomorrow? What does God want from you tomorrow, tonight before bed? Are there holes in your life you need to plug before bed tonight? 
Is there somebody that you need to apologize to tonight before you lay your head down to sleep? Is there an anger that you need to put away before the sun goes down tonight? Is there something you need to do before you end this day? I'm I'm saying plug that hole. Finish it today. And and find out what God has for you tomorrow. And and, and finish that tomorrow. Don't. Don't live your life in such a way where things never get finished, where holes never get plugged, where at the very, very end, you won't be able to stand before your master and say, I finished it. You want to finish, and that means enduring. So Jesus, in that final, final moment on the cross, when John, the eyewitness, stood there, Jesus had died. He had completely poured out everything for us. An unnamed Roman soldier stabs him in the side with a spear. Blood and water flow. Out of his belly flowed a river of living water for you. You understand that? John says, I saw this with my own eyes. I saw this, and what I'm telling you is accurate and true. So believe this believe this. Jesus finished everything that he came to do, and he finished it for you. He died for you, and now you, you live for him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Any final thoughts? Anything? Yeah, Dale. Yeah. And we, uh, we eat on Sunday, we, uh, we do the, uh, the bread and the wine. Yeah. To represent the body and uh, blood of Christ. And he says that he is the living water. So whenever uh, John or whoever it was that wrote the book of John. Yeah. Says that he, uh, uh, that he bled out blood and water. Yeah. Yeah, that's the blood and water flowing for us. Yeah. Dale, there are a lot of folks who see in that blood and water a picture of, of baptism, the water, and the Lord's Supper, uh, the, the blood. So, so, yeah, you're seeing what a lot of people have seen, maybe some sort of, 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 of image or, or suggestion of, of baptism in the Lord's Supper, uh, the life of the church flowing from him. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Amy. Yeah. Yeah, he's pointing out that others were there and saw the same thing that, that I saw. Yeah. Yeah, there is, whether it's several soldiers or just one, that there is apparently one centurion, a, a, a commander, who stands there near the cross. And, and if it's the same one, perhaps he becomes very important, and he might even be someone known in the early church. He may have actually come to faith. Because remember, at the foot of the cross, when Jesus says, I thirst, there seems to be a soldier who has compassion on Jesus and gives him something to drink. That's almost unheard of. But some soldier gave Jesus a a drink. There's also some soldier who in the moment when Jesus died said something really interesting. What did he say? Surely this was the Son of God. 
surely this was the son of God. And, and if it's the same one who literally approved his death by stabbing him, maybe this is a soldier who was known in the early church as one who came to Christ. It's very possible, very possible. Yeah, I love that. Anything else? Is there a song tonight, Andrew? Okay, let's stand together. Let's sing together. Let's end with, a, with worship. If you want to come to the altar, if you have a decision to make or a need for prayer, we'd be delighted to circle up with you or meet you at the altar and pray with you. Let's just uh, finish whatever God has for us this Sunday with the, with the final moment of response and worship.